Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-host, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about the assessment of the pediatric patients. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Sajin, kick us off with epidemiology. How often are we seeing kiddos? The estimate is there are approximately 25 million annual pediatric ED visits in the United States. There was a study conducted between 1997 and 2000 looking at 111 million ED visits by children less than 19 years old. And pediatric patients constituted about 27% of all ED visits during that time. 13% of all visits were EMS transports. 16% of children transported by EMS were eventually admitted to the hospital. And 62% of pediatric patients arriving at the ED were transported as a result of injury or poisoning. So that means one out of every five to six patients that EMS are transporting pediatric patients are being admitted to the hospital. So they're pretty sick. I think that makes sense, though, because most kids are very plugged in with pediatricians. You know, they see doctors all the time. You know, when they're a baby, they see them like every two months. And I feel like parents take them in. And then if they the parents are worried, then, of course, they're going to call EMS. So I think a, a sicker number of people come in by EMS. And as part of that study, there's also trying to assess the estimate of misdiagnosis or diagnostic errors. And they estimated about 5% of diagnostic errors in this population. So that means there are a subset of patients that we're actually sending home that also would have been sick enough to stay in the hospital. So any pediatric patient you're transporting has the potential to be very sick and they need to be taken really seriously. So let's talk about assessment. We all know primary assessment begins with the ABCs, but we also need a way to rapidly assess pediatric patients with different developmental ages. Several years ago, the Pediatric Assessment Triangle was developed, which has three major components, appearance, breathing, and circulation. And so these are things that you can immediately assess, sometimes without even touching the patient too much. Appearance, tone, interactiveness, speech, cry. So does the patient seem tired? Is the patient active, fighting the provider? We actually want babies to be crying and resisting. This is a good sign. Um, And so a kid who sometimes seems easier to manage um, because they're not fighting us or crying, that's actually not really a good sign. So remember in a previous episode, we I think it was episode number 44, we talked about rapid decision-making. Uh, medics arrived on scene to a family involved in a motor vehicle collision, and they recognized the child as behaving a little too quietly given the stress of the situation, um, and that was a red flag. Um, conversely, a child who is constantly crying and not consolable um, is also a red flag. So you want them kind of to be somewhere in the middle, in that middle ground. The next thing to look at is work of breathing. Are there nasal flaring, retractions, grunting, 
uh, making airway sounds such as, you know, the grunting, as I said, snoring, strider, muffled speech. What's their positioning? Is the kid sitting upright only? Are they tripoding? And so all of these elements of breathing are important. And then looking at circulation, uh, specifically the skin. Is there a pallor? Is there modeling of the skin? Is there cyanosis? So the appearance, work of breathing, circulation, these are all things you can just kind of assess by looking at the patient uh, really quickly. Another global assessment is mental status. Level of consciousness is important to see how good brain perfusion is. And it can be quickly categorized using the AVPU scale, where A is alert, V is response to verbal commands, P is response to painful stimuli, and U is unresponsive. So AVPU. These assessments become very important in any child who has the limited ability to talk to you. Um, In these cases, you rely on your physical exam and history provided by the caregiver. So like we always say, history is going to be really key and obtaining it from the caregiver, parents, or whoever is um, has been involved in the scene. And since you aren't able to get a great history from the patient, you should really trying to be utilize all the tools in your tool belt. And once you are able to lay hands on the patient, getting a full set of vitals can be really important. A 2019 article in the Journal of Pediatrics studied over 300,000 transports, including 21,000, almost 22,000 pediatric pre-hospital cases. Most pediatric categories, including from newborns all the way up to teenage years, had reduced odds of complete vitals documentation. So only 50% of neonates had a complete set of vital signs documented, 68% of infants, 78% of toddlers, 87% of childhood, and then 95% of middle childhood had complete vital sign documentations. So remember, if you're not able to get a great history and you're not able to get a great assessment just by looking at them, really use all the tools in your tool belt. Additionally, what was a little more concerning was that oxygen saturation documentation was lower in children with respiratory complaints. They're actually five times less likely to have an O2 sat documented compared to adults. So use all the tools you have, try to get a complete set of vitals, which can give you a lot of information. And these things are there to help you. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Sometimes a kid looks really good in mom's arms. They're a couple months old. And then you take their heart rate and their heart rate is like 200. And then we all know that 220 minus their age is their max heart rate. And you're like, whoa, you know, they're really tachycardic. What's going on? Then you do more investigating. So I think if you don't get that number, you are are more reassured by this kind of chill looking baby. We have to remember that developmentally, they can't do much. They can't even roll over yet. They can barely smile. So they're not going to be able to give us the signs that we're used to with the older kids or even adults that when they're ill. Let's go to some common pitfalls that kind of, you know, we in the medical system, EMS and physicians alike fall into a false sense of security. I'm going to say the first thing is age matters. And just like Danielle was saying, any infant really under six months is not going to be able to show you a lot of the typical signs of distress that we think about when we're assessing older patients. Fever, especially in this patient population, is very serious. Young children and infants often haven't developed a great blood-brain barrier, they don't have a great immune system yet, and a fever is a symptom of an infection, and we really have to do a lot of digging to figure out where that infection is coming from. It can be as simple as a skin infection or as serious as meningitis, and you really can't tell just by looking at these kiddos. 
So they really should be taken seriously, transported. Even in the hospital, we have to do lots of testing to figure out you know, why this patient is having a fever. So any infant under six months should really be transported and evaluated very thoroughly. The other main thing is, is seizures. We're very used to simple febrile seizures, um, and those are seizures between age six months to five years that are generalized in the setting of a fever and just one episode in 24 hours without any known kind of concomitant medical problems or trauma or ingestions or a toxic appearance. But that's still something that does need to be assessed in the hospital setting because it takes a lot of nuance to figure out what is a simple febrile seizure that we don't need to be concerned about versus a more complicated seizure that needs a lot of workup and treatment. I think another pitfall would be asthma and asthma exacerbations. You know, it's very easy to spot the patient in severe respiratory distress. You know, if they're cyanotic, they're mottled. The tricky cases are the borderline ones. The kids are sitting there quietly, you know, especially if they're young, you know, five, six years old. And so just remember not to get tricked up that not hearing wheezes is not a good sign. So a silent chest is not a good sign. We actually want to hear wheezes. We want to hear some airflow. And if the patient is not moving enough air because of severe bronchoconstriction, they may, may be in serious respiratory compromise and just not have any wheezing yet. Um, so transport all these patients. Asthmatics will rarely be hypoxic. So if a child is hypoxic from asthma, it's already too late. Um, so they really should have a normal oxygen saturation. Another case we often come across are foreign body ingestions. It can be possible for a child to swallow or even aspirate a small foreign body and still appear well. Um, again, unfortunately, until it's too late. I actually had a case a few days ago. A nine-month-old may have swallowed a metal screw but appeared fairly well without any respiratory distress. The mother was actually able to find a screw on the ground, and she thought, oh, maybe the child hadn't put anything in their mouth after all. The medics actually convinced them to come to the hospital, and on x-ray, we found the washer attached to the screw in the back of the patient's throat. And so, again, patients can look really well, and they can compensate for some things, and we really need to do a thorough exam on all of these patients. That's a great case that shows that EMS did really well in that case by getting them to come to the hospital because that could have taken a stable airway obstruction and made it unstable if you left them at home and the kids moved around and that washer had moved around their posterior pharynx. All right, Patil, what's your next pitfall? So in the case of traumas and burns specifically, remember that um, patterns of burns um, are important. And so there are certain patterns that are suggestive of non-accidental trauma or child abuse, which are linear circumferential burns suggestive of submersion, uh, round burns suggestive of cigarette butts. Um, and think about the 10-4 rule for non-accidental trauma. Bruising to the trunk, ears, and neck in a toddler less than four years is unusual. Any bruising less than four months. And that's because at four months, they're not really cruising yet. They're not moving around that much. So they really shouldn't have significant bruising. And just think, at four months, they roll over, they sit up at six months, crawl at nine months, and walk at about a year. So these are some of the things to keep in mind in the cases of trauma. And I'll say ingestions as well. So something to watch out for is if you have a child less than six months of age 
and a parent or guardian says that, oh, they accidentally ingested a pill, for example. Well, under six months of age, they really can't grab things and put them in their mouths. They don't have that type of manual dexterity. And so that should be a red flag. So any under six months of age ingestion is kind of a red flag and you should you know, always transport those patients. I think all the parents out there listening, you're actually a better person to provide a pediatric assessment, I think, once you have children. I hate to say that, but I feel like I got much better when I watched my own kids grow up because all of a sudden you're taking care of somebody and you go like, wait, my four-year-old at home does something way different. And then it gets in your mind like, well, why aren't they acting that way? For those of you without kids, I think it's harder because I remember having to memorize these and memorize what they're supposed to be doing. Like at one year old, they have the pincher grasp. Like she's talking about, they can pick up a pill and put it in their mouth. That's how you grow out the Legos. But prior to that, they don't have the pincers. So it makes you wonder about those things. So I guess if you don't have a kid around to start to see their developmental milestones, you got to like make a chart and memorize them. These will really help you not miss some pitfalls that can happen. Now, sometimes you see a baby that just like will not stop crying. Nothing consoles the child. And so we always talk about that. Well, what do you do with the fully inconsolable child? And this is usually around like that, you know, one year age range. Um, And there's a couple of things we talk about in this kind of one year and younger age range. One of them is corneal abrasions. So sometimes they accidentally have like just scratched their own eye and they just can't tell you they did that. Um, so whenever, you know, we have one of these kids, we will actually examine their eye to see if there's a scratch on their eye. And uh, and the other one is a hair tourniquet. So that's when um, usually like the mom's long hair uh, will get kind of wrapped and caught on a finger or a toe, or uh, we've even seen cases in a, on a baby's penis uh, where it's just like a hair that's wrapped around and that's so painful for them. And so that requires a definite transport because they're going to need a, a brief but important procedure to get rid of that hair. I think it's important to say that you got to undress that kid to look for those things. Sometimes there's no time for that in the pre-hospital setting, but once they come into the ER, we're going to strip them down and kind of look at everything because they might be crying over something as simple as the hair tourniquet that's really cutting off the circulation, or it might be something way more serious. Yeah. And in your assessment, if you're really worried about the kid, you're just like, I don't know what's wrong. They don't look good. Just strip them down and look at their whole body. One of the other pitfalls I like to say is when you look at kids breathing, especially in the wintertime when they're all bundled up in blankets and enclosed, you can't really tell how they're breathing. So their face looks okay and they're not grunting. So I say undo those jammies, take off their shirts. And all of a sudden you see that belly moving, you know, 35 times a minute. You're going, whoa, now I know that they're having trouble breathing. But they can hide it for a while. So I think undressing the kid, even if it's cold out, at least for another minute or two to look at their breathing pattern is really important. Let's jump to the treatment section. Since we don't encounter pediatric patients as frequently as adults, treatments and dosing of medications can be unfamiliar. Thankfully, we have useful tools to help us. And as I said before, use all the tools in your tool belt when you're in an unfamiliar situation. There was an amazing study published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2015, looked at 20 park medics as they assessed pediatric patients in a simulated environment. So the control group used standard methods to determine medication dosing, such as asking the parents to estimate the child's weight. In the intervention group, they used a National Park Service EMS length-based pediatric emergency resuscitation tape. This is similar to a Braslaw tape, but has medication dosing right on the tape. The time to intervention was cut down by almost half in the group that used the measurement tape versus standard methods. 
And this study is especially near and dear to our hearts because the author on this one is Dr. Danielle Campaign. That's right. It was a fun study to do. It involved our park rangers from our park service. Um, but it really did show the importance of using a pediatric tape. So in our system, that would be using the Brazo tape. It's on every ambulance because it is faster. We're not used to doing this math in our head under a stressful environment. So that tape is very helpful. And even in the emergency department, we when we know we're getting a pediatric patient, when we get that call in, we set up the room and immediately pull out that Braslau tape, and we use that um, in the ER as well. Now, there are also general things that we do, common interventions that we provide in the pre-hospital setting, very similar to adults. High flow oxygen is one. Just remember to use an appropriate sized non-rebreather mask. Allow the child to sit in their position of comfort. Next is IV access. Obtaining an IV in a child can be really difficult. For patients who need immediate care, such as hypoglycemic patients or shock or cardiac arrest, consider alternate access points because many life-saving medications can be given in different routes, such as intranasally. When in need, you can also place an intraosseous line. The easiest location is the proximal tibia, Typically, this is one centimeter inferior to the tibial tuberosity and one centimeter medial. You can also place this two to three centimeters superior to the medial malleolus. So don't be afraid to give medications either intranasal, intramuscular, or intraosseous. And the last thing we commonly give, especially in our non-traumatic shock patients, is IV fluids. Instead of thinking as the adult dosing in terms of one to two liters, For a pediatric patient, a typical bolus is 20 milliliters per kilogram. And this is what's described in our Central California EMS Agency protocol for non-traumatic shock. There's no one protocol to encompass all pediatric complaints. Um, So when you're transporting these patients, use these simple guidelines to think about any immediate interventions that are necessary. And as with all patients, make sure you're frequently reassessing and determining any other interventions that may be necessary. Let's go through some common formulas that we can use if you have to figure out systolic blood pressure or weight kind of suddenly in a kit. So I always keep the weight formula in my head first, which is that if they're less than a year old, it's age in months divided by two plus four. So age in months divided by two plus four is their weight in kilos. And then if they're over one year old, then it's age times two plus 10. That's their weight in kilos. So for example, if if it's a two-year-old, it's going to be two times two, four plus 10, 14, 14 kilos. Some other useful numbers are, um, like Danielle said, the formulas for systolic blood pressure. So your lower limit is going to be 70 plus two times the age in years. So if you're one-year-old, it's going to be 70 plus two. 72. And anything lower than 72 is going to be kind of too low. The 50th percentile blood pressure for age over than two years is going to be 90 plus two times the age in years. So if they're, let's say, three years old, it's going to be two times three, which is six plus 90, 96. So kind of the middle range blood pressure is going to be 96. Um, It's kind of good to keep those in mind because then you realize, wow, like, kids have a much lower tolerable blood pressure than adults. Let's go through some take-home points um, and talk about the pediatric assessment. Sajin. I'm going to say, remember to use all the tools in your toolbox and document all the vital signs you can, even for a well-appearing patient. They can uncover many hidden abnormalities. Patio. 
I would add that have a really low threshold for transport in all pediatric patients, especially if they're six months or younger, um, transport all of those patients. And my take-home point is use the Brazo tape for all your medication doses, especially in the really sick child. Trying to do math under stress is really hard, and so use that tape that you have, pull it out, and it just really helps make that uh, case go smoother. And one other thing I'll add is that um, the formulas for, let's say, weight, because you, you do want your want to know your weight, especially for fluid dosing and stuff. Some of those formulas, memorize them, just repeat them over and over and over in your mind. When I was in training, Danielle had made a little card for us that had all the formulas. And before every shift, I would look at them and say them to myself. And now they're second nature. So try to memorize a few of your key formulas so that when you're under stress, you don't have to think about it. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.